Hello, this is Two Minutes About Time with Luke Allen and Robert E.G. Black, the podcast that takes a look at the film About Time, two minutes at a time. I am Richard Curtis, and I hope you enjoy it. And if you don't, well, you can just travel back in time two minutes and listen to something else. I'm one of your hosts, Luke Allen, joined as always with my co-host, Robert E.G. Black. Hello, hello. And our special guest this week, Piotr. Hi. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners, please? My name is Piotr Skopjak, and I'm a feature film and TV drama director. And uh, Luke knows me through my film, The Last Witness. Which is a, a really good film. Is is there any go-to place that people can find The Last Witness, or is DVD the best option? It's on iTunes, it's on Amazon Prime, um, and I think Amazon Prime is probably the best place to find it now. It was on Sky, but I think it's gone. So iTunes or Amazon Prime. It was definitely worth it. I think I got the DVD on Amazon, and it was it was that wasn't too expensive, and it was definitely worth that price. Thank you very much. I'm glad you think so. So that's a really weird compliment to say, there, isn't it? It wasn't expensive, but it was worth it. But <laughs> yeah, really yeah, good for was... a cheap movie. No, but in, in all seriousness, I went to the screening of The Last Witness, and it was a really good film with some good British and Polish talent in it. Yeah, I'm very happy with it, and I'm very happy with the reaction. And as I say, it's great watching it with an audience. You saw it in the cinema where I did a Q&A. And as we've said before, it's such a different experience when you watch a movie in the cinema, and that is absolutely the best place to see it. But if you can't, then obviously streaming is the next best thing. So we've got minutes 26 and 27 today. So, Piotr, what was your first experience with About Time? My first experience with About Time was actually when you mentioned it, that it was your favourite film. And at that point, I didn't think I'd seen it. And then when I watched it, I realised I had seen it. So is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? Obviously, like you say, well, obviously it wasn't that memorable. But I do remember enjoying it. So that, that was very odd. And like you said, I mean, absolutely the second time, you know, I enjoyed it a lot more. And I think it's a, I think it's a great film. I think I totally understand why it spoke to you in a particular way, um, for obvious reasons. Yeah, um, which I'm sure you'll, you'll get into. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get into, absolutely. But yeah, I think it's a lot of fun. And I think I'm not, I can't remember what the reaction was when it came out, because obviously Love Actually was, was Richard Curtis's kind of big, big hit, I suppose. Uh, after four weddings and a funeral, but about time kind of came out and uh, came out and disappeared from from what I remember, mm. and I don't think it was reviewed particularly well, and I don't really see why because I think it's a great film, a great little film, and it's got a lot of heart, and it's one of those films where I think everybody working on it had a great time. Mm. Definitely feels like that, and I think one of, well, at least what I think is one of the key reasons for it is that with about time, uh, he does with a lot of his films, but especially about time. The Richard Curtis's family are on board, so his girlfriends, the script editor and the associate producer, and his um, kids have got like extras and acting roles in it, so it, it's definitely got that sort of family dynamic, which I think is sort of expressed on screen. Yeah, and I think one of the things which I've noticed, especially with this, and I, I can't remember who it was who said it, it might be Mark Kermode who said it, which is like a perfect film 
or, or, or sorry, or maybe it's a good film isn't necessarily perfect. It's just good enough to look past its flaws. And yeah. I, that, I mean, that's what it is with this. I think there are some things if you look into it and you try and overanalyze, as we are, I guess. But overanalyze cynically, you could say, "Oh, that's all wrong. That doesn't work." But at the end of the day, the film can look past that, and it doesn't. Really, you know, you, you're not held back by the flaws necessarily. But I mean, which film doesn't? I mean. There's a very few. You just you, you did a you did a Twitter feed on kind of perfect movies. I mean, yeah. the whole point of filmmaking is it's never perfect. You're working in an imperfect medium. I mean, the minute somebody makes a perfect movie, why would you ever want to make another one? I mean, that's the whole point. Is the flaws just as in characters that make things interesting? And in this case, it's always going to be you know the time travel. Oh, how does the time travel work? You know, in any time <laughs> travel movie, your first thing is how's that going to work. Um, and as you say, it, it's not about the time travel. Who cares? You know, it's 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 a device, and it works for me. It just it, it just works completely because you just got you as you say, you look past it. You just enjoy the film. It's a device to get you into into the gags um, and into his world. And why not? And it absolutely plays on that whole uh, idea that we would all love to just replay that again. It's kind of it's kind of like filmmaking, you know. On a film, you get to do another take. You know, in life, you have one crack at it, and you don't, and that's it. That's it. The moment's gone, and we've all had those moments where you've gone, "Oh, can I just leave the room, come back in again?" Um, and that's what that's kind of that's what's funny about it, and that's what's kind of sweet about it. And mm. yeah, I mean, it, it can relate to absolutely everybody, surely. And Robert, I think what we were saying when we recorded, because we've literally just come from recording an, an episode of Robert's show, Cock and Bull Minute, wherein we talked about About Time, and as part of that, compared it to Yesterday, another Richard Curtis film, well, once again, yeah. you're set into the universe of the film, and you, and it's basically, this is what the ability is, this is what the world is, let's not worry about why, let's tell a story with it, which yeah. I think is yeah, what, how films should be. Yeah, doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. You know, films, films in the end are fun, aren't they? They're all, mm. everything, it's, it's yeah. not meant to be real. You know, it's not a documentary. No film is a documentary. Everything is fantasy. Everything is, is a heightened version of, of some kind of reality in the world you build. Uh, I mean, you know, people watch science fiction movies and don't think about it. You know what Star Wars and yeah. everyone goes with it. So how can you then now suddenly apply different rules to another film because it's supposedly set in the in the real mm. world? I mean, it's kind of I think of a lot silly, of people have been, um, I might have said this before on this show, a lot of people have been quite cynical of Richard Curtis's films in general, saying, oh, it's unrealistic the way he portrays love. But Richard Curtis actually said in an interview, thousands of people in London and millions in the world fall in love every day. And yet, if you see someone make a movie about like a serial killer killing a baby or something, you'd say, wow, that's shockingly realistic. So what? what why is <laughs> yeah. a film about love? <laughs> um, yeah, and everybody's experience is different. But like you say, everybody has that experience of falling for someone, falling in love yeah. and different experiences. And it's and it's eternal. You know, no one has the exact same experience and it goes on and on and on. It's like every story, you know. But as you say, yeah, so someone who has experienced love in some way or what they believe is, is love in some way and they write a story about it, well, that's their experience. If, some, if it doesn't engage somebody else, well, it's not their fault. You know, for them, it's real. And I think that's what's important is when you tell that story and you make that film that it has a heart and it's coming from the right place. Yeah, if you're if you're trying to make a cynical movie, 
but then I don't think cynical movies work. I think again, I think if you, you we've all seen them, you know, you watch it and you're being manipulated, but in the wrong way, and you do kind of feel, no, nah, that would never work. But this this just felt as if we're watching the film and no one really cares what we think. They they're getting on with their story <laughs> and we're just watching it. And if it doesn't work for us, fine. But kind of, they don't care. <laughs> Do you yeah, see they're what not I mean? trying to win us over. They're trying to no. tell the story and yeah. get on with it, yeah. which is yeah. which is great. So, minute twenty six opens with the continuation of when Tim first meets Mary. First, uh, which well, we have Mary first meeting Tim three times in this film, but this is the first time Tim meets Mary. <laughs> and it's and the opening line is Tim saying, "I love your frock," and she says, "And um, my hair, it's not too brown. I love brown." My fringe is new. <laughs> the fringe is perfect. Fringe is the best bit. And I, yeah, I, I, I sort of love this exchange. And I mean, it's, it's a, it's a little bit sort of cliche-ish in terms of instantly expressing her sort of insecurities. But I think it's fine. I think it's, <laughs> it's the quirks of Mary's character, really. Yeah, and they're both, you know, it's that thing of, again, I mean, what made me laugh in this scene was the fact that the fringe is awful. You know, it's almost mm. like I mean, <laughs> Rachel McAdams was clearly a, a you know a good sport in the you know we we all know that the fringe is awful, but he goes oh but the fringe is the best bit. I mean, it's just so mm. kind of sweet. And, and they call uh, back to it later on in a, another scene in the film, yeah. which yeah. I think is great. And it is. It's, it's both not just of them. her Both of them are nervous, aren't they? Both of them are nervous, and yeah. it's a, and it's this kind of both of them are wanting to to appeal to the other because they already kind of have made a connection. So now it's like the other way around. Most people, when they walk into a room, they, they look at the physical first and then they hope that they get on. Here, they've already got on and they've come out and now they're looking at each other. So it's it's completely hmm. the other way around to how it actually normally happens in real life. Yeah, um, It also and- comes back, Luke, to your your interpretation that this is this is the story he's telling sometime in the future yeah is that she's the one we get to see be insecure yeah in this scene and he's sort of insecure also in being immediately trying to reassure her and like continue the conversation but she's the one physically interacting like touching her hair when she's nervous about it yeah yeah she doesn't quite trust him the way when he says these things yeah because this is his story Absolutely. And what's also funny is that obviously Rachel McAdams is quite clearly very attractive. So yeah. you're looking yeah. at her through his eyes, kind of going, you know, what have you got to be insecure about? You're gorgeous, you know, but you're seeing it from that sort of a, a real perspective. She doesn't see that. Or maybe, maybe yeah. even how we see Rachel McAdams as Rachel McAdams is part of Tim's telling of the story. She is the lead of romantic movies. Mm. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. maybe he's, you know, maybe Mary within the universe looks completely different, but Tim is telling her as a romantic lead, and thus we're seeing her as the romantic lead. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, yeah. it's probably why, you know, they went for the fringe, just to kind of make her a little bit more kind of geeky looking, uh, rather than this kind of, you know, fantasy sort of character, you know. Mm. And tonight, have to, if that's an interesting one, I'd like to ask Richard that question. Yeah, I, f- I feel like when these episodes come out, I'll be just DMing Emma Freud every week, being like, "Can you explain this? Can you explain that?" <laughs> well, they must Until be. I've... I mean, I think it's always interesting. I think I, I find it with my own films, or, or what I've done is when people see things in the film that you had you never thought of, or mm. they will Even see the something cast, you go, sometimes. "Oh, I never, saw, I never thought that." You know, I, I didn't do that for that reason, but I like the fact that you know you see that in that or whatever. 
So I think it must be interesting for other directors to see what other people see in the film, whether they kind of agree with it or not, or whether they, whether somebody else sees something in the film that they never thought was uh, was kind of in it. Do you see what I mean? And I think it's great to have you on to talk about directing from a professional opinion, really, because we've just sort of rambled on about it for a while. So it's good <laughs> well, to... you know, it's always you it's can always... tell us if our interpretations are right. <laughs> well, it's always funny. It's always fun to talk shop. But I think you know, always when when I'm watching other other films, and especially films I like, obviously I'm trying to learn from that film and trying to put myself into the shoes of the director of what they wanted, what he or she wanted to do in that moment, and you know, what their thinking was in that in that scene. Were they trying to be overtly manipulative? Were they trying to be real? Were they trying to be fantasy? What is in there? Because you're always trying to, in a way, when you get a script, you're trying to find out what is in that script, what the, what the subtext is, you know, what are we trying to do with this scene? And then you're trying to, to put that across to an audience. So in this case, you know, it's anything that works, you try to analyse it in that way. I mean, the easiest way is just talk to the director. That's why it's great having, you know, director's commentaries on DVDs and this sort of thing. But in absence of that, you're always trying to deconstruct it and see why does that work, you know. And I think we've talked quite a bit, Robert, about the colour scheme um, yeah. throughout this. And even even here, like, Tim especially is matching the colours of the background. Mm-hmm. Like, his his red shirt matches the curtains, his black matches the dark of, like, the night and everything. So it's quite... I mean, it's weird because Richard Curtis on the commentary didn't mention anything about the colour scheme, but especially in this film, it does seem so clear in some scenes as to what they're trying to go for. Yeah, I think those those conversations are always interesting because quite clearly, you know, you've had the you've had the discussion with the costume designer, you've had the discussion with the DOP, you've had the dis- discussion with the production designer, and yeah, colour a colour scheme is absolutely you know essential. That's that's one of the tools. So you can see, you know, when they're at the at the house by the beach, it's all bright and white and this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, it's a lot kind of moodier. We're in London; it's dark, you know. But again, you kind of you're guessing at what what they want you to feel, or you know, in the end, it could just be well, it just looked it just looked cool, so we did it mm. that way. There was no sort of there was no agenda with uh, with how things look. But I'm sure, you know, there's there's no question. They, they thought about, uh, as you say, the colours and the costumes. So before we move on to Joanna's line, Robert, have you got anything on visuals for this first half of the movie? No, and the the stuff with Mary's obvious. Like, she's touching her hair and looking away. She doesn't... She's mm. She likes that he's saying these things, but she does not trust him yet. This makes me notice even more their height difference. Like, she is considerably <laughs> shorter than him. She yeah. is. I like how Vanessa Kirby breaks the scene. Mm. as well i, I like yeah that. we hear her first yeah and yeah. then she comes out I th- I, and again i think this is one of the points because there was another clip that you gave me with tom hollander in it and yeah. one of the things i wanted to to bring up because it's something that i i really try to do as well is that how lucky were they or how how lucky was richard curtis or how you know how ahead of how ahead of the curve he was to have chosen the supporting actors that he had oh, i mean yeah. he had vanessa yeah. kirby tom hughes I mean, Tom Hollander was already known. Obviously, as you said, Luke, uh, Margot Robbie as well, before she was Margot Robbie, you know. Yeah. I mean, just all the individual parts and characters, doesn't matter how small, are cast for me so well that you just get so much fun out of all, all the characters. And, you know, they Vanessa all feel Kirby, like real people. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's always like the key. You know, you kind of believe the character straight away. And good actors, 
will create that character almost immediately. And Vanessa Kirby is just great. I mean, she hasn't mm-hmm. got a very big role at all, but you remember her, and she's she just gives you something in every scene. It's just the way she plays it. You know, there's just something funny about it. You know, it's great, it's real, and it's a nice counterpoint to what's happening between these two. So Vanessa Kirby, as Joanna, says, Mary, we have to go. I've found a cab and his dodgy friend's about to assault me. (laughs) And um, apparently in the script, she was supposed to whisper it. Um, So she changed that quite a bit. (laughs) Yeah, she yells it from down the street. But that's it. You know, she's she's that character from the off. She's sort of a loud, you know, she's that kind of kind of the loud girlfriend, isn't she? And and Mm -hmm. it's a nice counterpoint to the kind of the, the... you know, the, the subtle way Rachel McCarran's plays, she's the more unsure character. Vanessa Kirby, Kirby's character is clearly very kind of confident. Where do we stand yeah. on the comedy at potential assault? Because you got it a bit in the earlier scene as well, where it's like, it's it's made funny, the fact that Jay is... I mean, we don't... Jay doesn't really seem like the sort of character who would try anything more, but... I think know, it's, it's important that we don't see what he may have done in the alley right here because it could be the minorest thing and she's blowing it up or it could be horrible but we don't have to see it yeah we just we just get to see her reaction yeah i'm thinking mostly she she's been with enough men like that that she fears that jay is going to rather than jay actually doing anything Oh, yeah, and I, he was introduced as dodgy, so yeah, we're ready. I, I I never really took it that way. I took it as she's completely taking the piss, you know. Yeah. It's because you know, he's because he's set up as a as a dodgy character, but he's just a fool, isn't he? He's kind of yeah. Yeah. set up so we don't you don't feel as if she's in any danger whatsoever with Jay. That he's yeah he's he's kind of loud, he's cocky, he's all this. But already I don't I didn't believe that he's that he's in some kind of way a threat to her or the girls in some way. No, I just thought it was, I thought it was funny. Yeah. I mean, as you say, is it funny to talk about assault? But I mean, you see, you do this all the time. You just take the piss out of people, don't you? Of course she doesn't mean yeah. it. No. I don't mind it in this context, but I just think no. as an idea, it's quite a, a dangerous one, which has been played quite well. Yeah. And I think, for... I think this is the thing, you know, times change as well. I mean, I, it's a, if I think about the sort of things I used to say when I was at school, all my friends used oh, yeah. to say, and which were were acceptable then, but are not acceptable now. At the time, you know, English humour is very much to do with taking the piss out of everybody. You're constantly taking the piss out of everybody. You know, it, I always remember this thing of, you know, that's why Americans are always confused, because they're saying, did you mean that? I said, no, 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 of course I don't mean it. <laughs> I'm taking the piss. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's that. It's just um, something you do. It's like the Tom Hollander character. I mean, you kind of think he's being really quite aggressive, but he's not expecting you to, you know, to be in any way threatened by him. He's just up offloading on you, isn't he? So actually, Robert, from your American perspective, how does this whole British comedy <laughs> idea work? Well, in this instance, I don't think it's even a British thing. I think it's still funny because for me, I think it's funny because even if Jay were doing something, Joanna seems like someone who could take care of herself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's she's very, as soon, even in the dark, we could tell she's that kind of person. Yeah. She's not going to put up with anything. Yeah. And I think I'm quite intrigued as to, because obviously when he goes back in time, it means we don't actually... Other than maybe at the wedding, we don't see Joanna and Jay meet again. 
And right. like maybe if they met again in a different circumstance, like it'd be interesting to actually see how their relationship would would have been really. Which is definitely something I'm going to keep a lookout for when there's all these group scenes later on in the film. <laughs> yeah, but I kind of think yeah, I kind of think it would never work because obviously he no. uses Jay uh, Richard Curtis then uses Jay to to get together with Kit Kat. Yeah. yeah. So I which think once it's a again yeah thing. yeah once again as you said Robert before like when she's with. I've forgotten his name, Tom Hughes's character, when Kit Kat's with him. And I, Jimmy. Um, she, Jimmy. Yeah, he's he's quite a dodgy one. And then the go-to is replace him with Dodgy Jay. Like, it's <laughs> it's quite a... But yeah, I think I think Jay is more of a a sort of banter level of dodgy more than yeah. as Jimmy was. Well, Tim, Tim likes Hughes. Jay. Yeah. From the deleted scene from earlier, we know that Tim doesn't like Jimmy. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Because like, as you say... Jimmy is dodgy on that, you know, you don't feel safe with, with this. This guy could actually cause you harm. He's a threat in some way. Jay, to me, is never a threat. It's like, you know, Tim says, you know, when they go into the dark and he says, you know what, I really don't like him. You know, he, but he's out with him. So clearly yeah, he does yeah. like him. You know, right. if you don't like someone, you don't spend time with them at all, do you? So, you know, so it's that classic, as you say, banter of I, I, I really, you know, don't like you, but I don't like you because you're so different to me. Mm. I'm just and I not think like if he you. Really, <laughs> I think if he really didn't like him, he wouldn't say that in front of Jay. Well, of course. It's a sign of their friendship that he actually says that and he knows that Jay isn't going to be offended by that comment absolutely um, absolutely so then mary continues on to say okay okay i'm i'm coming two seconds i hope to see you again and tim says you will okay good good night and then night and that's the end of the dialogue for this event. yeah and i love that she turns the wrong way yeah she doesn't turn 90 <laughs> degrees she turns 270 yeah i, I saw that I, saw, I noticed that, that I, I watched it again this morning and i noticed that this time i didn't notice the first time she she goes the long way around yeah and then she looks once and then she looks again and it's also yep. playing on that kind of cliche of you know we i don't know which came first you know whether it happens in real life or whether it comes from films this thing of when Men say goodbye to a girl. They're hoping she looks back, and it's almost like uh-huh. did I see? It must be in something. If she looks back, you're in. You know, if she doesn't, yeah. then you know that's that's an over. exact scene from something. Yeah, yeah. I know that there's to go Richard Curtis, and I've definitely talked about the scene before in his film The Girl in the Cafe, when Bill Nye is leaving Kelly McDonald at like the coffee table when he first meets. There's this really sort of awkward thing where he doesn't know whether to go back and say something to her or whether to leave and like it, it's very similar but slightly more exaggerated to what what's happening here where he sort of walks turns around walks back for a second walks back forward and i think what bill nye is doing in the girl in the cafe is what people are sort of mentally doing yeah <laughs> whether people are actually physically moving forwards or backwards it i think it definitely feels as though you are when you're in that circumstance and so as mary walks off a piece of music called midair plays which was a music that piece of music Richard Curtis was so keen to have in the film that he actually had it playing through his headphones while they were filming the scene. Yeah. And another note here is that Donald Gleason got Rachel McAdams to record the lyrics of Midair along with a Philip Larkin poem called First Sight so that he would have fallen in love with her voice before he saw her face. Which is just... I don't know how that works, but it sounds sweet. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's how... It's how they get to that point because obviously they 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 meet in the dark, and so they kind of fall in love in the dark, just listening to each other, and then they see each other, and then you know the 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 scene kind of finishes with them 
with her looking back and then kind of you know it's it's done the, the the it's kind of sealed at that moment and and the lyrics for me you know the music comes in at the perfect time and the lyrics kind of tell you the rest of the story it's it's lovely i, I remember the specific movie that that line was from i think it's in a lot of movies the looking back thing it's in the line of fire with clint eastwood right <laughs> Rene Russo walks away that's and he, he's go, watching yeah. her. He's like, she looks back. She's interested. That's and then she it. Looks back. That's it. That's, that's not it. the film I was going to expect you to mention, to be honest. <laughs> right, right. That's it. Is I'm he, sure is he a similar steps? thing is, is he in lots the, of... Is he on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial? Or something? Yeah. That's it. When they have yeah, when chat, they're like eating they? ice cream or something that's by it. the Lincoln Memorial. Yes, yes. How brilliant. Well done. So, yeah, as Mary walks away, we're all, because Tim's our narrator, we have got just the close-up on Tim... And then yeah. the shot of Mary walking away, like we don't follow her leaving or anything like that. Like it's very clear what character we are following at this point. Yeah. And I think that's that's something which I've always been sort of bouncing between when I'm writing like my shorts as well, where it's the idea of do you tell the story from one person's perspective or do you actually right. show other people? Because I think both can work. It just depends on on the film. And that's one thing which, looking back with Unstable, I, I sort of to and fro on whether I did that right or not. But I think at the end of the day, it turned out okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, clearly. I mean, if you are, in this case, we are identifying with Tim. It's The film's yeah. from Tim's point of view. As I say, he's, he's the narrator. He's telling us and he's he's inviting us to to go on this kind of journey with him multiple i mean and you can tell pretty much i mean i don't know what it is is he in every scene of the film i mean is there Probably, any scene that he's not in because in most cases if the lead character then isn't in a scene you are you are obviously not looking at it from their point of view so you're now looking at it from a point of view of another character so for instance yeah. you know in heat which is a good example you know, you've got uh, Al Pacino's world and you've got Robert De Niro's world. So every time yeah. you're with Al Pacino, the film is from his point of view. When you're with Robert De Niro, it's from his point of view. So that's kind of an easy example. But in most cases, you know, your your lead character, if he's in it, in every scene, then quite clearly you are running with that lead character. I don't think there is a scene without Tim in this film. There, there's definitely shots uh, and sequences that... He's not in, but it's, they're part of scenes where he's like narrating when he introduced his family. Yeah, yeah, yeah he wasn't the out there with them, of. but so you could imagine he's standing there looking at them. Exactly, he's there through the narration, so he's there in spirit. Yeah, yeah. I say as we continue on the minute, I love Tim's walk back, like him just sort of smiling to himself. Like there's something mm-hmm. just so sweet about this, and it's it's sort of so innocent between both of them, really. That you, you know, and how how happy he is that at this point. He's found love without time travel. He was going to use his yeah. ability to find love and to get a girlfriend. Yeah. And at this point, he hasn't. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. And he then, didn't need it. Yeah. And then, as I say, as it goes on, obviously we're not reviewing the rest of it, but as it goes on, he then, by using the time travel, he messes that up. Then he's got mm. to come back to it. Yeah. So that's that's really interesting. That was just a really interesting thing that he's, as you say, he's got it. He's got what he wanted, and it's actually come quite easily without him having to do anything. Because he's kind of, you know, when he said to his dad, this is the, oh my God, it's the mothership. You know, it's the biggest thing you can be, you can try and do. And here it is. And I think, yeah, in comparison to Margot Robbie as Charlotte, like, he tried so many times for her to like him. Mm -hmm. And it still didn't work out. And here he he didn't try and it worked better. Incidentally, I, I always remember, this is mildly related, 
that's what podcasts are for mildly related conversations <laughs> um, I, I, I remember when I was going through a course for my baptism they, they described evangelism as like talking to a girl once you're when you try too hard you're definitely going to fail you only succeed the minute you stop trying. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think, I think, you know, this is. So I'm saying about that. It doesn't matter how many people give you, how many people give you advice. How you, you got to kind of do it, and then you learn by your mistakes, and that's what's the really annoying thing is because you always, if it goes wrong, you come out going, "Why did I do that? Why did I say that?" You know, and then other people, you kind of, as I say. I don't know whether you've had that kind of experience, but in my experience, it is. It's the people that you kind of ignore or don't really talk to those are the people that kind of that, that keep popping up and it's the people mm. you really go after that just run a mile so there's definitely something in that mm. and so i think we're ready to go straight on to 27 i, I just want to point out yeah. one quick visual because it's adorable the last thing we see of mary before she ducks in the alley she kind of waves without even raising her arm <laughs> like she waves right by her waist yeah and then just disappears <laughs> It's really not yeah. like you say. It's kind of pure. It's just that there's there's no kind of agenda there, you know. They just yeah. like they just like each other, you know. And it's mm-hmm. a really nice moment because we're all, you know, we're. I think we all want to feel that moment, and if we have or we haven't, it's just such a kind of cliche in love that moment that in that moment both people want exactly the same thing. They're not thinking about being somewhere else or with someone else. In that moment, they've gone, "Oh wow, what's that?" You know, and that's the thing you're. You're kind of trying to to capture every time, but the yeah. more rom coms you see, as I say, it becomes you know you don't want to you don't want it to be a cliche. You want it to be real. Her wave definitely does feel like a thing you do, possibly mm-hmm. without even thinking about it. It's just yeah. like I've I guess slightly to the fact that I've noticed recently when I've been texting someone and I've been this is possibly really stupid. I, I may be the only person <laughs> who's done this. When I've been texting someone and I've texted them a thumbs up, I've noticed myself literally giving a thumbs up as if they're in front of me. <laughs> well, that's right. I, I never say LOL unless I'm laughing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so we open Minute 27 once again with Tim continuing his walk of smiling to himself. We then have him letting himself into the house quite quickly. like he And, and still smiling. Like I think he wants to tell Harry about how great this day is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, which is weird because we don't get that impression from Harry that he's the person you want to share stuff with. But, <laughs> Not at all. but I think I mean... also, I, part of me is wondering what the heck's happening with Jay because he's just Tim's just left Jay completely. Yeah, <laughs> as far as we're aware. <laughs> but yeah, it's like Harry's just the next person. He, he's the guy who's got to hear it because he's the next guy Tim sees. Yeah, it just happens to be he's got to go home, isn't he? He's now he's clearly not. Not going to tell Jay about it. He doesn't really want to tell anyone about it. It's just someone will bump into it. He kind of wants Harry to go, oh, yes, how did it go? So he can kind of tell him how wonderful it was. But, you know, but you, you got to tell someone or it's not real. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think you could, he couldn't tell Jay because Jay was there. I think it, yeah. it wouldn't have the same resonance because he'd be telling the story that Jay, whether noticing it or not, that Jay was there for. And actually, this whole scene here that we're about to see begs the question. Why wasn't Tim there when the play opened? Why was Tim just out on a random night with Jay? Because what they had didn't seem like that was a, you know, their uh, going to the dark restaurant. Like, that's not necessarily something which had to happen on that day. So Well, it could have been. It, that, was, that was a trendy thing at the time. So maybe they had a res- Jay had a reservation far ahead and it just happened oh, and to then the, on the same the, night. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I, I just kind of wondered, thinking, like, Tim and Harry living together must be close enough for Tim to actually go to see harry's 
premiere. Yeah. Uh, yes. Well, I don't know. It didn't bug me. It didn't bug me that he hadn't gone to the to, because that's you know that's no. his world, and you know there's that great shot earlier in the film where he says, "Oh, that was six months of me doing my lawyering thing and him doing his plays." You know that that yeah. scene where he's drinking a beer, you got, and it's almost like a yeah, split screen, together. and he's, yeah. he's at the bottom of the stairs drinking a beer, and it just shows. I mean, they're in the same house, but they're apart. But their lives are, and maybe yeah. When when they end up, when Tim ends up moving out and living with Mary, it's supposedly when they become closer. Yeah, because suddenly Harry is there at the wedding. Harry's there at the. Uh, at the the christening party, at the funeral. The christening, yeah. Well, Harry, Harry would be at the funeral anyway because he was a friend. Right, because he knows his James. Father. Yeah, yeah, and Harry's so kind of self-obsessed. He doesn't, he, you know, he's he doesn't he doesn't want to hang out with Tim, does he? You know, <laughs> just, I don't, you know, I don't know that many other. Th- I've seen Tom Hollander in a few things, but I can't figure out what his character type is. So this is like I was watching Maybe Baby the other day. I don't know if either of you have seen that at some point. No. But Tom Holland is in that, and he plays like a Scottish film director who wants to make a comedy about drugs and everything going wrong and murder and <laughs> all of that. And Hugh Laurie is like, who's like playing the guy who's pitching, he's taking all the pictures, and he's like, "How's this a comedy?" And there's this great exchange. But he ends up being a successful director anyway because everyone else understands it except Hugh Laurie. Maybe Baby's a really good film. <laughs> the Ben Elton book, Inconceivable, is better, but the film is. It's a solid British film about a film director and his wife that are tr- struggling to conceive. Right. I haven't seen it. Uh, but anyway, that's a completely random round. But yeah, what is the Tom Hollander character? Because I know him so well from this that if I see his face in anything else, he's instantly unlikable. And I can't tell whether that's the point or whether I'm just become subliminally hating Tom Hollander's face. Well, no, you, I mean, clearly, you know, when an actor <laughs> plays a, a character really well, you know, that sears into your brain, doesn't it? And then you can't, you know, it, it's in a way he's played it too well and it's too memorable, you know. But in this case, you know, I mean, I just think Tom Holland is just, I mean, he's just a fantastic actor. But I think he just, he, he plays characters that have, you know, self-obsessed characters that have the kind of the weight of the world on their shoulders really well. And that kind of dry humour, that kind of the way he the put downs you know, he does those really well and that kind of, you know, that... And you kind of relate to him in that everybody has that family member or friend who is this just, why am I here? You know, why am I with this person? The only reason I'm here is because they're a friend of my dad or whatever, but he's just awful. He's the character you love to hate, yeah. but a better version of that, because sometimes the character you love to hate, you don't actually love that much. Like, when you've got the characters who you end up hating and they want you to hate, you can hate them too much and it can sort of take you out of it. Whereas with him... You can completely understand why Tim still stays around with him. Like, he's not... Like, you can understand why people don't like him, but you can also understand why he's okay company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, I think I think it's important that when we first meet him, like, when he says to Tim, make, don't make any noise, particularly when having sex, and he's, Tim's like, no, and he's like, oh, two losers in one house. Yeah, like, yeah. That line is so significant, because it's the first point where we go, okay, this guy actually knows that he's not... Very likable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and his wife, he's very even, he's self-deprecating. Yeah, his, wife he's left, self-deprecating. his wife left him because he wasn't good enough. Yeah, like he... And that, and he's, he's self-deprecating to the extent... Yeah, it's like 
you don't feel sorry for him because you know that he doesn't seem to mind it either. Like, yeah, and, and yeah, it's makes, the, you know it's he the makes kind of, jokes about it. Yeah, and it's not too much of a hard subject. He knows he's awful. Yeah, he, yeah. You know, and he's and you know his thing he's in life is he's it. trying to be better. He's trying to make that you know that that great play. He's a he's a suffering artist. He's clearly obviously trying to do better every time. So whatever he does will never be good enough. It'll just yeah. keep going, which is a, you know it's a curse really. You know, you can't be happy with your work, but that affects other people because you become self-obsessed and you become obsessed by your work. And, you know, that's just something that pushes people away. And, you know, that I, I love that scene where he first comes and he goes, what do you want? You know, I, I mean, it's awful, but it's great. It's so funny when he says, you know, I just had one of my best ideas or whatever for a long time and you just ruined it <laughs> you know thanks <laughs> you can understand that that horrible you know he doesn't you know didn't mean it but it's he's telling him the truth and it's just really annoying and he's just i think it's the sort of thing which everyone i think part of us all like harry because he says the things that we all want to say yeah. at those times yeah. like yeah. i think yeah. i mean obviously you know a lot more about writing than I do as I've only just written a few shorts but I, I, I know that point where an idea comes and someone takes it away and you just want to yell at them because you yeah. knew you had a good idea <laughs> that was really good what was it or as you say you know you're you're in the flow and you get a phone call and it's like I really don't want to talk to you now but I don't want to be rude but I kind of want to say can I read that later <laughs> and then <laughs> once that idea once yeah. that idea and is yeah, gone you, you, you blow come, it up you come too. across you come across as rude. You can come yeah. across as rude because no one, unless you do that thing, unless you're a writer or, or, a, or a painter or an artist in some way, you don't understand that thing of, you know, you can't just sit down and do it. It has to kind of, it, it hits you. It's at not a nine old, to five job. No, it's a no. job which you pick up when you want to. Yeah, well, you, you know, it's that classic extent, thing of yeah. I have my best ideas when I'm driving or, or yeah. if you're on the bus or something or if you the minute you say right i'm going to sit down and i'm going to come up with something it never happens you sit there and, and nothing happens and it's a real can't... shame i can't write a script while walking the dog because that's when all the ideas <laughs> here, you know yeah i mean every every writer will say the same thing that kind of writer's block thing i mean some writers can do it they can sit down and they write mercilessly kind of for three hours but they say a lot of the time they're writing nonsense and it's only later that they start editing it and it all comes together. So it's just a different way of doing it, but it clearly isn't something that you can just turn on and turn off. I think it was Richard Curtis who actually did say in an interview that like, if he wakes up on a day and sits down and can't write, he won't write. He won't sit there and try and write. He won't write. But then if he's on a day where he's on a big flow, he'll write. And then at the end, he'll leave himself a few notes as to where to go on the next day so he can just pick up straight on. Yeah, I mean, yeah, my my own experience was that, I mean, I, I was delaying writing for about nine months because mm. I was trying to write a new draft for a producer who was waiting for it, ultimately. And I pretty much had uh, a year to do it. <laughs> and I did it in the last three months, as you do. But I literally spent, oh, you're trying to write and then not doing it, trying, not doing it. And then literally, and it came a moment where I said, right, I'm ready. And I sat down and I wrote it all in a month. And just wrote the whole thing out. So, but up to that point, I'd still been working on it. But you was been, that the last witness, or was that a different? That's the last witness. Yeah, last yeah. Witness. Because yeah. I was just, I was trying. I was working on it in my head. I just wasn't doing it physically. Mm. But then, when it came out, it just came out all in like one go, and I wrote it very quickly. Mm. And so I found that with Unstable that I'd spent weeks. I mean, obviously, short film is shorter length of time, but I'd spent weeks sitting down writing stuff and then deleting it and be like, this doesn't work at all. And then the moment I'd written the opening scene, by the next day, the whole thing had been finished. Yeah. And, like, I noticed that when I've tried to write other things, I've written, I wrote a script which I quite liked, 
but I don't think I proofread much before I'd sent it to someone else. So like I'd written the script and I was like, oh, I really like how this works. I like the story, but I'd written it near enough, like, like a page or two a day. And like, basically I've written it in between doing other things. So it flowed well in my head, but I didn't proofread it enough that I sent it to people and they're like, it's structurally all over the place. Yeah. Well, it's a lot of it is stream of consciousness and then it's all in the editing. It's all in rewriting. You then, you know, you, you throw it all out and then you start going back over it and you start editing it and, and cutting it and rewriting it, rewriting it, rewriting it. And finally you chip, chip, chip away at it and then you get some semblance of a, of a, of a script at the end of it. Uh, to go back into the minute, Harry has hurt his, his thumb or his finger. Or his something. Thumb, we can, we yeah. can barely see it. But apparently most of the focus on the scene was how they'd show the blood, even though you can hardly see it. Oh, really? Um, huh. Yeah. That's what was... Yeah, we barely see it. We can figure it out. He broke a wine glass and cut his thumb. Yeah. But mm. it's... Yeah, the camera never zooms in or anything. Mm. No. And I'm looking at the wine bottle. Are we to assume that he's gone through the half then? Or is it he's just opening up something he's drunk before? You know, what I got from this straight away is... The minute Tim walks in, he screams, goes, ow! Yeah. Oh, he's and waiting for he's waiting. the attention. He just wants attention. And then it's, <laughs> oh, what's wrong? You know, and now, oh, well, I'll tell you what's wrong. And then he goes into this whole thing. So it's, you know, it's, it's again, it's not about the, the wine and the bottle. But I think, I quite clearly think he sat there, you know, drinking, his, drinking the wine and wanting to offload on someone and sort of finds his, uh, finds his excuse when Tim comes in. And I love the fact that we are seeing with Tim here, they're both wanting to share something, mm-hmm. but Tim Tim doesn't mind waiting. Yeah. And I think that says a lot. And maybe that, once again, is Tim being the unreliable narrator and he's making himself come out a lot nicer than, you know, we don't know in the circumstance. But I, I do love the fact that he pretty instantly goes, when Harry explains the situation, he's like, okay, I'll go back and change it for you. Well, obviously he doesn't say that, but he Yeah, but he's he also in a, in a fantastic mood, isn't he? Yeah. yeah, because he's coming. It's like whatever you say, you're not going to ruin it. Because that, this is just brilliant. I've, you know, I've had <laughs> apart a great from the fact night. that what, apart from the fact that it ends up literally ruining it. <laughs> well, that's it. That's what that's what he doesn't know about it. it. Yeah, because he doesn't yeah, know. Maybe that. He's, he's trying to be. He's trying to be good. He's trying to do a nice hmm. thing because he feels great. And inadvertently, he now ruins that thing by helping someone else. He's kind of messed up his own situation. He's in such that point in his life there, really. Yeah, where it's like. He's he's so taken aback by how wonderful that went that he's not thinking straight enough to realise that he's just going to undo it. Yeah, but he but he doesn't know. That's that thing is what we were saying. You know, in real life, you you don't have another chance. In that moment, you make a decision, and that's it. You can't go back and fix it. So in this case, he's just going ahead, going, "Well, this is this thing in front of me. I haven't actually realised." what happens if if I go back in that moment. He's been told, yeah. but he's learning by experience. Well, as far it? as we know, he's only gone back to fix things so far. This is something he doesn't want to fix, so it probably doesn't even connect to that part of his brain. He's exactly. Like, yeah. He's not thinking of the two things together. Exactly. So to actually read the lines, because I realised I didn't read the dialogue, is, what's happened? What have you done, you poor, uh, you poor thing? Which he says to... <laughs> it's so, so patronising. <laughs> Nothing, it's just a flesh wound. Here, thank you. You may remember, my play opened tonight. Oh yes, how did it go? Well, it went well. You could tell in the room a masterpiece was being unfurled. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Really? Until, and this is the most crucial plot point, I think, until the lead actor had the most massive dry in the history of (laughs) theatre. No, no, no. Yes, yes, yes. He didn't just forget his lines. He forgot his lines to the extent that no actor has ever forgotten their lines before. 
in the annals of dramatic art, the reviews won't say major masterpiece gets unveiled, and that's where our <laughs> it's, it's such great delivery. And like, part of me wants to see how it actually went. Like, did it really go as badly as he believes it did? Because you think that like a stagehand or someone would, you know, would lend a hand and. Well, you and, get to see it. That's it the thing. You get yeah. to see a bit of it. Yeah. You get to see it. You get to before see Tim it. fixes it. I mean, you know, like, that's for, an, that's for another another episode. It. But that's a great yeah. moment. You know that when mm, when he tries really. to fix it, and we get to see that that moment. But for that, but for Harry in that moment, I mean, again, this is stuff. Anything you put out there, you know, you're in the hands of the actors. In the hands of you know, I don't know whether he directed it. You know, you're putting your baby over to someone else, and now you're fate is in their hands so all you can do is sit there and watch you know and hope it goes well i guess you could literally compare as you said with like with filmmaking as being you can go back and change it it is like you know this the world of this film to real life is like what film is to theater you know that you can the theater is that's you can't go back and change stuff whereas film is you can i can't imagine how tough it must be to write or direct something for theater and then just leave them to do it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it must <laughs> like, be oh. awful. I mean, I, I, you know, that's a, that's the difference in a way. Not that I've directed theatre, but I would think that's the big difference because all your directing is done in the rehearsal, and then once yeah. once the play opens, there's nothing you can do. You can't run on stage and say, "Hang on a second, everyone, let's rewind. Let's just have that entrance again. You know, let's just do that scene again because it didn't go the way we thought." You know, obviously, you can do it the next night, and in most cases, you know. In theatre, again, from what I've heard, actors will try and do it slightly differently every mm-hmm. night to keep it fresh for themselves. You know, if they're doing it for a year or something, you know, they've got to keep yeah. it fresh. But as a director, you know, it's an actor's medium, I would think, not a director's medium. Yeah. And yet the director often ends up taking such a big credit for it that it could be awful. Well, like Harry as a writer, you know, if it goes bad because it's your name that's stuck on It's not the actor. It's never... I mean, we don't even know the name of Richard E. Grant's character, but guarantee it would almost be to the credit of him, you know, that it, yeah. the show didn't work out. Well, yeah, I mean, he that happens and he goes off to another job or whatever, but the writer, the director are left with it. Harry's left with it for the rest of his life, you know, in that moment. Yeah, his name's on the marquee. That's it. Yeah. In that, they'll always remember, oh, do you remember that play where the actor dried? Oh, whose was that? You know, it's, it's that moment. It's the yeah. same, you know, it's the same. I, I, my experience in, in film and TV is kind of the same. In the if it's good, then it's brilliantly acted. It's brilliantly yeah. written. It's brilliantly photographed. <laughs> it's 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 beautifully produced. If it's if it's a flop, it's badly directed. Yeah, mm. yeah, <laughs> I get that. <laughs> it might not be entirely true, but it makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but it's a yeah, and that's what you kind of sign up to, you know, right or wrong, because obviously, you know, from from everybody's point of view, you know, if all these, if, if it's a success and all these, you know, and uh, it's a success and all these people are involved in the success, then obviously if it fails, then all those people are involved in the failure as well. You can't just single out one person. The whole point is it's, it's a, it's an ensemble thing. So even directors saying, oh, that's my film is difficult because, well, you had actors, you had DOPs, you had, you had a lot of people doing that thing for you. And if, because they did that work well, you know, you can say that's that was what I intended, but it's still a group effort. I mean, for Richard Curtis, in my bias, I can't think of a Richard Curtis flop. But you take a look at the success of Four Weddings, which he wrote instead of directed, so it was a little different. 
you talk about Four Weddings and a Funeral, it's the Hugh Grant film. Mm. It's not the Richard Curtis film. Mm. Yeah. Because it's good. So you go for the lead actor, yeah. But I mean, you know, that's that's it. I mean, Richard Curtis didn't direct that film, but obviously the writing is so, as as you've seen his other films, is so him that, you know, he had a lot of influence on that film, you know, really well directed. But clearly his uh, script was one that was just a joy to direct, a joy to play. And, and the same here, you know, he directed it himself. But I'm sure if another director directed About Time, it probably would have come out very similar, I would have mm. thought. I guess in the, in the best possible way, Richard Curtis films, it, it you don't notice the difference as to who's directed it. Like, the Rich, Richard Curtis films, although his directing is incredible in this, and like the, the more we look into it, the the great things that he means with different shots and with all the handheld cameras. It's a Richard Curtis film because of the writing. Yeah. It's never a Richard Curtis yeah. film because right. of the writing. And, a... and that's why he, he, he quit directing after this film. Well, um, there's a, there is a moment. I can't remember. I'll I'll tell you in the next uh, episode. Um, there is a moment in About Time where uh, Donald Gleeson is... I, I can't remember which scene it is, but I was looking at him, listening to him, and going, that is just so Hugh Grant. He's just doing Hugh Grant there. Yep. It's to his credit that in the rest of the film, it's not. It's very much, you know, his character. But there's, I can't remember. Can you remember what, what I'm talking about? There's one scene where he he sounds very. It's very kind of Hugh Grant. Where you can imagine Hugh Grant delivering it in the same yeah. way. Well, I think I think it's something with Donald's British accent as well. Like because he's Irish. Yeah. His British accent is like the Hugh Grant accent <laughs> at times, <laughs> which Richard Curtis apparently didn't notice at all. But he did say on the commentary and other things that people were saying to him. Doesn't he sound like you? And he was like, does he? <laughs> well, there you go. That's that classic thing of you're not aware. You know, making the film, you're not aware of how people are seeing it. I thought Donald Gleeson was great in it, as I say, because you know he's. it's not his natural accent. Again, watching it the second time and the third time, it's really good. It's, again, it feels like he's having a really good time, and I like him. I like him kind of immediately. Well, when I hear him being interviewed, his real accent feels fake because of how good his, his <laughs> accent was in this. And like in American films, he does really good American accent yeah. as well, or as, or as far as I'm aware. Well, that's I, I will always I always find that odd that Americans. Uh, this one for you, Robert. The Americans will will say, "Oh, I didn't know he was English." Mm-hmm. Like you know, yeah. when it was uh, it was that how how do you not know he's English? I mean, how many American different American accents are there? I mean, if we, you know, it's like in England, there are so many different accents, but not to say there's a generic American accent. I mean, obviously, West Coast, East Coast, Mid- yeah. Midwest. I mean, there's so many. So so when Americans say, oh, I didn't know Idris Elba was English, it was like, really? I find it really? hard to Hugh, yeah. Hugh Laurie as well. Hugh Laurie is the weird one for me. Mm. Like, because the director of House didn't know that he was English until he was on set. <laughs> Which probably makes me think: How much research did you actually do into the lead actor? <laughs> considering he was he was the main, per- well, you know, one of the two leads in a bit of Fry and Laurie, possibly <laughs> one of the most British shows, and Blackadder, a British, like a massively British show. Yeah, because I'm and sure I, you're the same, Luke. I'm sitting there going, Hugh Laurie's accent is not great. <laughs> I'm going, I'm going. That's such I a put on American it, accent, but... you know. But it doesn't his, matter. Yeah, I think his it, American accent in House was we... consistent. I don't know if it was mm. necessarily good, but it yeah. was so consistent that it felt like a real way of talking. And so you just assume he's from some, like, he's from some northeast area where they talk like that. Yeah, yeah. 
which weirdly can't be said of Tommy Wiseau. <laughs> no. he's, he, he's not necessarily putting on an accent, but his accent does seem fake. Yeah. Yeah. But, the, but do you see what I mean? There's there's so many subtleties and accents, as I say, you know, you know, there's a difference between North and South London, yeah. let alone North and South of England. So states, I mean, in America, you know, Texas or, or, um, or New York, I mean, surely, you know, people can, can see. But as you say, maybe it's that it's the consistency. And in the end, you know, it, it's not about the accent. You don't care about the accent. If the if the acting is good and so on, you, mm-hmm. you, you may notice it in the first few scenes, but after that, you're into the story. And if, yeah. the, and if the performance is good, you don't care. And with Margot Robbie, for example, I didn't even notice it. <laughs> like, no. It was just, it was like, oh yeah, she's British. Okay, sure. Carry on, <laughs> you know. Um, but then this was, as far as I'm aware, the first thing I saw Margot Robbie in, so... I think it was. I think it was as well because I, I mean, as, as you say, I mean, I didn't even realize it was Margot Robbie when I first watched it when she turns up in the car, and then it was struck. Hang on, she looks like Margot Robbie, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was so again. How how long I how long ago I saw it, but quite clearly, you know, all all of those um, actors were just coming up then. So. Robert, is there anything on the visuals for the, this minute before we wrap up this? Uh, I just that Harry, as he's talking, gets another wine glass out and pours himself some more wine, <laughs> <laughs> and he doesn't offer. No, he doesn't Tim offer anything to Tim. No. He just gets out no, another glass. It's not about pours. Tim. It's about him and his, uh-huh. his monumental failure. He, he wraps his finger really quickly and then gets another <laughs> wine glass. <laughs> But that's what I mean. That's what makes I you wonder you know, if this has happened a few times. <laughs> it's that, yeah, it's, but as you say, it's that thing of it's not about it's not about the finger, it's not about the blood. It's about him wanting attention and yeah. wanting you know to tell somebody. Because if Tim wasn't there, can you imagine he'd be there in the house on his own, suffering this way? Is just at least he can tell somebody. But imagine you know. if yeah. the play he had is, gone his well. Posture. They'd both have great stories to tell, and they'd have a good oh, night. Yeah. you know, together. Yeah. Yeah, his posture instantly changes as well once he realizes that Tim doesn't mind talking. Yeah, it's like, oh yeah, okay, well, basically, you might remember my yeah. play open tonight. Yeah. He's so casual. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like it's not like it's what I've been working on for the past year. <laughs> it's like, oh, you know, you. I, I'm trying to think of what what you could compare it more to, and I can't. Or it could be like, oh. You might remember that my favorite TV show finished today. You know, it's yeah, not yeah. like it's it's like that's how he treats it at first, even though it's going to be a horrible story. Yeah, and you know, and I love that. It's just the delivery of it again. I find I love that kind of the calmness of it all. It's not like he th- starts throwing things around the room. He just says, "Well, look, you know, it was. It was yeah, this is what it was," and then you know, hits the. You know, gives you gives you that delivery of yeah, and this is the most. But the most important thing, and the plot point here is <laughs> that it was a monumental failure, not just a little failure. You know, so he sets it up beautifully, as if you were all thinking, "Oh, it went really well, fantastic." Oh no, it couldn't have gone worse. I just <laughs> the delivery is just fantastic. It just makes you, as I say, it it he you warm to him, you absolutely warm to him because you know he's put his heart and soul into it. Yeah, he absolutely. You know, however self obsessed he is, he absolutely cares about this play and he wants it to be fantastic and he's been let down by this you know this one guy it was going so well until the last line of the play i mean awful awful so piotr where can our listeners find you on social media at piotr kopiak and on instagram hashtag piotr kopiak but uh, on my facebook page as well just piotr kopiak and i use that for for all the information on last witness as well last witness doesn't actually have a website yet but uh, that's something i'm working on 
And Robert, where can the listeners find you? Uh, Lemmingdrops.com for links to all my podcasts and other things. And Robert E.G. Black on social media. And the listeners can find me on Twitter at Llama underscore Bottle Zero. They can find me on Instagram at The Ginger Luke. Facebook at Luke Allen Film. And podcast short films, whatever, all at LukeAllen.co.uk. This podcast is available on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Two Mins About Time. Thank you so much everyone for listening and we hope you tune in on Wednesday. Tara. I've been trying to come up with different didn't ways you to use say that goodbye. Already? If we do Tara, have I done Tara? <laughs> I so. I've run out of goodbyes to be honest. Um, Thanks for great. The Two Minutes About Time theme is performed by Ethan O'Mahony and is a cover of the About Time theme originally composed by Nick Laird Close. Two Minutes About Time is a production of Lemming Drop Studios in association with Bottle O Productions. <laughs>